great to be here, um, and uh, I always love coming here, although it's a little more costly, because before it's just one service, in, out, it's like great, it was like an easier day than being at the cathedral, now it's like, it's a long day, so anyway, no, I'm going to have a lot of fun, this is really great to be here, so thanks for letting me come, I send greetings from uh, Bishop Stewart, who's going to be here in two weeks, he said I'm going to be his warm-up band this morning, so, and then uh, also... For those of you who are Moody students, you know Dr. John Clark. I was with him last night, so he sends his greetings as well. Um, So I've been thinking a lot lately. um, I don't know why, but I've been thinking a lot about questions lately. So I've actually been collecting questions. So I have this in my prayer journal. I have this page that I've titled, this really brilliant title called Good Questions. And then I jot down like good questions. A good question is something that you don't just have an instant easy answer for you have to really think about it and it's it's almost like kind of like a lifelong question something that you're going to come back to and ponder over and over again I'm not sure kind of how I got into this phase in my life my friend Greg um, is a guy that teaches at he's a Christian guy teaches at the University of Chicago um, School of Business I guess that's Booth right is that Booth School so anyway he he told me about this book called A More Beautiful Question and in that book in the introduction it says To get the best answers, you have to begin with the right questions. And I like that. And he quotes somebody that, uh, like, a good question is like a screwdriver that you use to pop open a paint can. You know, a good question has that kind of like, it opens things up. It it helps you to see things you you wouldn't ordinarily think about. So I mention that because when it comes to calling, and Father Aaron uh, talked to me about preaching on calling, which is something I, I really, I'm really excited about, and I've actually thought a lot about, especially over the last 10 years, I think sometimes we begin with the wrong questions. And they're not untrue questions, they're not totally unhelpful questions, but they're just not the best questions to start with. So we often begin with questions like, you know, when you're little, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then you're going to college, what are you going to major in? And then you're done with college, what's your career going to be in? And what are you going to be? And and then when are you going to retire? And what are you going to do with your retirement? You know, Americans generally, we obsess about those questions. I mean, they're just like so important to us. They're so wrapped up in our identity. We just can't let go of them. And I, again, I don't think they're wrong questions, but I think there are more beautiful questions to ask as a follower of Jesus, more urgent questions, more pressing questions. And so when Father Aaron asked me to... to preach on this passage, I I started meditating on this passage, and actually just based on this text, these stories of Jesus, I I came up with like about seven questions from this passage alone that have to do with calling. I'm not going to go through all of those, but I'll just try to go through four of them. And my hope is is not that you will like um, necessarily be overwhelmed by all four questions, but that you might maybe just pick one question that something stirs in your heart as I talk about it, or or maybe you'll take these questions and just sort of begin to ponder them. Uh, maybe talk to them with a mentor or something like that. So the first question is, what cracks my heart open with beauty? What cracks my heart open with beauty? Where am I going to find beauty? What is the source of beauty? Um, the French philosopher, young woman named Simone Weil, who died as a young woman in the, I think in the 40s, um, she said there are two things that can crack open the human heart. One is suffering. Suffering will crack open our heart. 
But the other thing she said that cracks open the human heart is beauty. So I want to talk about that today. Um, when I say beauty, I don't necessarily mean something that's pretty or something that's like a work of art, um, a, a painting or a poem or a song or dance. Now, those things can all be beautiful, but I don't want to just limit it to that because I think beauty is something, anything that captivates our mind, captivates our imagination, and it draws us in. Like we kind of go, wow, I need to see that. I need to know more about that. In, in a way, and I hope this doesn't sound too weird, it's like, I want to be, be part of that. I want to be unified with that. Um, that's what beauty does to us. Now, one of the early instances of beauty, beauty is all over the Bible. The Bible has just so many instances of beauty, such a high value on beauty. And I, and I love the fact that at Emmanuel, that's such a high value of yours as well. And and uh, Father Aaron and uh, the leaders of the church didn't just make that up. It just it actually flows from the Bible and from the Christian story. But one of the early instances of beauty is when this guy named Moses, second book of the Bible, he's living off on the grid at this time in his life because he's, he's tried to like make a difference and he's tried to like right the world's wrongs and he ends up um, killing a guy and he, so he has to flee. And so he's in the wilderness, he's, he's off the grid, he's trying to ignore God, ignore everybody else, and he's, he's walking along, just doing his job, and he sees a bush that's burning, it's on fire, but it's not consuming the bush. And he says here in, in Exodus chapter 3, he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. It's a beautiful, just simple example of, of beauty. It's like, I got to see this. I'm drawn in. It's like a magnet. It's pulling me in. Now, I mention that because the disciples in this, in this passage, you see them, two sets of disciples, actually, two quick little vignettes. They both see Jesus. Jesus calls them, and he says, follow me. And they drop everything, and they follow him. So the first set of disciples in Matthew uh, four, they were um, casting their nets. They're doing their job. These are hard workers, middle class, small business owners, and yet they leave everything and they follow Jesus. And the second and it happens again. Another scene, this time with James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They're in the boat with their father. They're mending their nets. Jesus called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, we don't know the whole backstory to this. We don't know if Jesus maybe had some kind of conversations before this. We don't know. But the thing is, no matter what happened, this is it's kind of abrupt. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, I'll follow you, Jesus. And I always wonder, why did they do that? Why would they do that? And, and I think part of the answer is, is that this idea that Jesus was beautiful. Now, again, I don't mean by that just physically attractive. I mean, this is a kind of life I want to follow. This is the kind of person I want to follow. This is, this is the kind of example I want to follow. And they were drawn in by that beauty. And I remember at a, uh, a very low point in my life, um, about 10 years ago, when I thought life as I knew it was pretty much over. And I was basically at the point of almost despair, ready to give up on my faith, uh, I, ready to give up on ministry. Uh, I remember just sitting, just sitting on my couch uh, in the afternoon on a fall day on Long Island, and I heard God whisper to me these words, no matter where you go, I will surround you with beauty. 
I will be with you, and I will surround you with beauty. Again, it wasn't just the beauty of art or the beauty of nature. It was the beauty of people. It was the beauty of the church. It was the beauty of his word. It was the beauty of the presence of Jesus, and I have found that to be true. He has surrounded me with beauty. And so I ask myself sometimes with, with all the doubts I have and all the ways I struggle with faith, why do I keep believing? Well, it's because I find Jesus preeminently beautiful. Um, see, in the Bible, Jesus is not just one source of beauty among, other, among many. He is the source of all beauty. I love the way the gospel writer John puts it in John chapter 1. He says, Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, any beauty thing, anything of, that's beauty, he is the source of it. You follow the trail. It leads to him. That's what the scripture says. So where are you connecting to the beauty of Jesus? How do you find that in your life? How do you find that through the church, even this flawed, imperfect instrument? Yet we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate Eucharist. That's beautiful. So where is, what cracks your heart open with beauty? How do you connect to the source of beauty? Second question is this, is who do you want to follow? Who are you following and who do you want to follow? I love those two words in, in the Gospel of Matthew, that, in chapter 4 that we read. They just kind of stand out. And, and I have a red letter edition of the Bible, which so the words of Jesus are in red. Um, that's not the way it originally came down to us. But, um, but it's kind of fun here because it just pops out at you. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, literally, Jesus was saying, become my student. Become my apprentice. Let me mentor you, not just in one little narrow area of your life, the religious area or the spiritual area, but in all areas of life. It's holistic. There is no sacred area that Jesus mentors you when you're in church and then you mentor yourself or other people mentor you. No, you're mentored by Jesus in all of your life. It's comprehensive. So who is apprenticing you? Who's apprenticing you in your manhood or your womanhood? Who is apprenticing you as a, a husband, a wife, an employee? Who's apprenticing you with your finances, your sexuality, or how you treat the poor, or how you use your time? See, my point is something is mentoring you. Some, you are an apprentice with something, someone. We all have voices in our heads, our parents, what they did, what they didn't do for us, that leaves messages in our head. Our family of origin, the culture around us, the advertising we see, it all is apprenticing us. So ultimately, who is your ultimate mentor? Dallas Willard is a Christian philosopher who died a few years ago. He, he said this. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs so you get this sense of, wow, there's heartbreaking needs all around me. What's the, most, what's the most urgent thing? He says, is whether those who are identified as Christians, he puts in quotes, will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. And then he put it this way. He said, the essence of a disciple of Jesus is not that I live exactly like Jesus, because we can't. We don't live, we live today. We, don't, we didn't live 2,000 years ago. We're not 30-year-old itinerant rabbis, but the question to ask as a disciple is, how am I learning to live my life as Jesus would live my life if he were I? So if Jesus was me, 
living in my life, my body, my routine, how would he live his life through me? Now, I realize that can sound kind of abstract, so let me give you a, a specific example that I just heard this week from a friend of mine named Chris. Chris is a, lives on Long Island, a very bright guy, graduated from Cornell with a degree in entomology, the study of insects, not bugs, because bugs are just a sort of kind of group of insects, you know, so he's studying insects. So um, he's a beekeeper. That's what he does for a living. And he does beekeeping. He has a lot of these apiaries, which are little beekeeping places, houses, whatever. So he's an apiarist. So um, he's got these like all over, spread all over Long Island. Um, he was in the news recently. He, they wrote him up in a Long, Long Island paper because some vandals had destroyed like eight of these little bee houses just for like no other reason to just be mean. Now, Chris loves bees. And he also, you know, I don't know if you know this, but we're like in a worldwide bee crisis. There's not enough bees around. So Chris is really, he's really passionate about this. So they interviewed him and he said, you know, at first I was really angry. I wanted to find those people and I just wanted to take revenge. Just like, I hate those people. I just want to punish them. Um, and he said, he, but he talked about his faith and he talked about one of the things in the Bible that God tells us to do is do not let, um, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Chris said, you know, I had to just give up that resentment and what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to donate eight nooks, I think is what they're called, N-U-C-S, which is like just basically a starter kit to start your own little bee farm. So he said, rather, I'm going to donate them, and that's how I'm going to trust God to overcome evil with good. Now, I thought about that story, and I thought, that is how Jesus would live through a 50-something guy named Chris who's a beekeeper on Long Island. That is he, is, he is living that question. He is steadily learning from Jesus how to live the life that he's supposed to live in Jesus. So who are you following? Who do you want to follow? Who, are you who is apprenticing you, mentoring you? Third question. And again, maybe just one of these will just really stir your heart. And this is the way I put this question. What is your dream within God's dream? So God has a big dream. It's massive. It's huge. It's called the kingdom of God coming on earth. We're going to pray that in just a few minutes. May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. That's God's big dream. Notice in verse 17 in this text, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is like, this is his, really his core message. A lot of Bible scholars think this is the core message of Jesus, is the coming of the kingdom. Um, so what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's so rich, it's so vast, you know, books written about it, but so I'm trying to get something really simple. To me, uh, the kingdom of God is, is really epitomized in one verse from the New Testament, and it's from the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, chapter 21. Jesus says this, behold, I am making all things new. The kingdom is where Jesus is making things new. So it's, it's an individual thing. It's in my life. It's in your life. He's making us new. He's taking our brokenness. He's making us whole. But it's also social. It involves society. It involves institution. It involves politics. It involves government. It involves education. It involves 
Jesus coming and making things new and breathing his life into things. That's the big dream. So God has a big dream. What's your little dream in that big dream? Now, I love uh, Martin Luther King Jr. because he, he, he had a dream, right? And his famous dream speech, that's a perfect example. He said, I have this dream. It was a dream about racial reconciliation, racial justice in this country, in this nation. It's a beautiful example. He was so clear about that dream. Now, of course, we all know Martin Luther King Jr., he didn't just make that up. He was immersed in the scripture. He saw that in the biblical story. He was, that's what he was trying to live on. He was, he was immersed in the kingdom of God thinking. And that was his dream within God's dream. So what is your dream within God's dream? Let me give you an example um, in my life, a really specific one, of something that actually just recently, it's just a, it was a dream of mine within the dream. And God's actually blessed it. I could give you, dream, I could give you examples of how I've failed, but let me give you one that's actually worked. So um, I... We, I've been running at our uh, Church of the Resurrection a course called Alpha. And Alpha is like a 10-week course introducing people to the really basics of Christianity for people that are questioning, they're skeptics, they're not believers, um, most for the most part. It gives them a safe place to hear what Christianity is and then to push back and give their own, ask their own questions, give their own objections, etc. So We've been running in at the cathedral, and I, I just had this dream. I want this to get out of the cathedral. I want to run this in other places. Um, so I just started praying about it, started praying and fasting about it. And uh, within about six months, uh, a woman who's the chaplain at the DuPage County Jail came to somebody in our church and said, I've been looking for two years some church to volunteer to run an alpha in the DuPage County Jail. Do you know anybody that's interested? He said, well, let me talk to Matt Woodley. So he comes and talks to me. Would you be interested in running jail or uh, running alpha in the jail? <laughs> running jail. No, I don't want to run the jail. <laughs> that was, it'll be a little over my head. But I could dream that I could do that. I run an alpha. I said, yes, that would be awesome. So we ran alpha in the DuPage County Jail. We had about 20 men show up. Uh, had two guys come to know the Lord through this process. Crazy stories. One guy came to know the Lord through, uh, a, he asked for a sign. He had, a, it was, it had this dream about a poker hand, but I don't want to get into it. But anyway, that's what led him to Christ, you know, was this dream about a poker hand. So anyway, um, and then uh, somebody else came from College of DePage and said, hey, we really want to run uh, Alpha at COD. So we ran, it's College of DePage, a community college. So we had about 30, 40 students showing up for that. Now it's also running at UIC. You know? So this is an example of a dream within God's dream. So let me ask you, what, what is your dream? Now, one of the things with life is that life can sometimes snuff the dreaming mechanism out of us, the dreaming capacity. Um, Langston Hughes, the African-American poet, had a poem about how life is like a, a bird with a broken wing, you know? It's just, it knows it could fly, knows it should fly, but it can't fly anymore. So what is it? But God, I believe that Jesus wants to restore that dreaming capacity. We'll talk about that more in a little bit in the next question. But what is your dream? Have you ever asked God what his dream is for you? Have you ever asked the church 
because this is where our brothers and sisters in Christ can help us. You're not on your own doing this. It's not just an individualistic thing. We can do this together. We can dream together. So what is your dream within God's dream? And the fourth question is this. When your heart breaks, what will keep you going? Now, notice the way I phrased that question. I said when, not if. Because our hearts will be broken. Big ways, little ways. And we will be tempted to just give up. Um, I remember when I, I was with Bishop Stewart actually in 2015 in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh. Um, and I don't know if you know the history of Cambodia, but in the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, a Marxist government, took over. And they were trying to, trying to like, make things better. They wound up killing almost 30% of their own people, were starved, were, were murdered, just horrible, horrible. The killing fields, you've probably heard that phrase before. So two to three million people were killed in this experiment. Um, and we visited a prison called Tool Slang, uh, which was prison number 21. It was a former school that was turned into a, um, basically a torture chamber for high-level Khmer Rouge leaders who, see, as the movement sort of degenerated, it, it kind of turned in on itself, and they began this feeding frenzy, like, we don't trust the people out there, but we don't even trust the people in here either. And so they would bring these leaders in, and they would make them sign confessions, and then they would kill them anyway. You know? So we visited this place, which is left pretty much, they've left it exactly the way it was. It was like one of the most gut-wrenching experiences of my life. Um, just utter, utter heartbreak. You know, you don't have to go to Phnom Penh, though. That's here. And sometimes you think, well, that's massive, but there's quieter ways to get your heart broken. Just sort of maybe a relationship, maybe just kind of a slow, just sort of like, I don't know if I matter. I don't know if I really count. Just kind of a slow grind of loneliness, or maybe depression, or just kind of like eats away at your dreaming capacity, as I said, and it breaks your heart eventually. Notice what Jesus is doing in this passage, because he's surrounded by heartache. It's like one big emergency room with all these people in, in verses 23 to 25. He's, there's people with every disease, every affliction, afflicted with various diseases and pains. They're oppressed by demons. They have seizures and paralytics. So he's around this massive ER. And sometimes people can look really good on the outside but be spiritually lost and don't even really, they're worse off, Jesus would say, than people that know how sick they are. But notice what Jesus does. He moves into this. He's like right in the middle of it, standing in solidarity. It's all around him. So he's doing three things. This text tells us he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease and affliction among the people. He's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's healing. He's actively moving in to the chaos, to the brokenness, to the heartache. And that's what he does all the time. That's his life. That's what he did. That's what he did throughout his life. That's what he did in the incarnation, in his baptism, in his teaching, 
in his ministry, and then when he died on the cross, that's the sort of the full force of that, standing in the midst of our sin and all human brokenness. So what will keep you going? You know, I'm 58 years old, and I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 30 years, and one of the things I've seen is people, Christians or non-Christians, that want to make a difference. They really want to make a difference. And then it just doesn't work out the way they thought it would. And somewhere along the line, their heart gets broken. And they either drop out or they keep going, but they're sort of, they're, they're going with a broken heart. And a broken heart in a bad way. And I see that over and over again, and they don't end well. You know, at one point in my life, about 10 years ago, I thought I'm going to be one of those people. I am that person. And I will be that person for the rest of my life. Well, here's the thing. Jesus wants to restore the brokenhearted. Because who, when you, when you go to serve in Jesus' name, who's already there? Jesus is already there. He's already ready to heal. And you go with him. You don't go it alone. You're not just pursuing your dreams, your passion, your calling. You're following in the footsteps of Jesus. You're following him. I love the story of International Justice Mission, a Christian organization that works with uh, human trafficking around the globe, started by a guy, a lawyer, a Christian lawyer named Gary Haugen. And um, I love what they say. So they're in some of the worst places of the planet in terms of human heartache. But I love what they say about how they start their day every day. They start as a staff. They start their day every day with a half hour of prayer and silence. Not before you get to work, but as part of your job. So I don't know what they start. Maybe they start at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. to 8.30 is prayer. And, and then they meet frequently, daily, for corporate prayer. And then they meet quarterly for like a day of prayer. And Gary Hogan says, we couldn't do this work without connecting to Jesus. We would not do it. We would not be able to keep going. So when your heart breaks, what will keep you going? Well, it's Jesus is the answer. Now, I've talked a lot, so I was thinking, I had a couple ideas how to conclude this sermon, but actually I just think the best way is, is just to sit down and stop talking and just give you a minute or two of silence and let you ponder. Ponder is a great word because it kind of involves your mind and your heart and everything that you are, and it's kind of a prayerful thinking. It's in the presence of the Lord. So just maybe ponder one of these questions or ponder a couple of the questions, but we'll just have a minute of silence, and then uh, Father Aaron will continue the service. I invite you now to stand. And let's just take a moment to respond to the teaching with prayer. Father, we, uh, we offer you our broken hearts, our broken wings. We offer you our souls where 
dreams could be planted or maybe replanted. We pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, and uh, allow us to see Jesus as the disciples saw him when he said, hey, follow me. We pray that we'd be drawn in by that beauty, that we would be drawn in by that promise. Lord, I pray that we would, um, that we would have the same vision that Jesus has, but unique to our life, unique to our gifts, unique to our situations. I pray now that we'd be able to offer up any uh, slanderous words that have been spoken over our calling, over our gifting, maybe that we've owned. And I pray now, Lord, that you would send a great, uh, just a great and gentle healing and an invitation like the one that you gave Matt 10 years ago, an invitation to be surrounded with the beauty of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an invitation to follow you into our calling, an invitation to humble ourselves and be your apprentice, to stop running our own life, uh, to, to give ourselves to those that you've given to us, to mentor us, to lead us, to guide us, um, most especially Jesus Christ. We pray now, Lord, uh, that you would take this word, plant it in our souls, and bear great fruit over the years and decades. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.